Hello, you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Episode 1. The end of the end and the beginning of the beginning. In this episode, we're going to set the stage for the start of our narrative by going back a bit before the year or one of the years, generally considered to be the end of the Western Roman Empire, 476 AD. If you want to hear this done properly, you might want to go back and listen to the last episode of The History of Rome by Mike Duncan, or the first few episodes of The History of Byzantium by Robin Pearson. Anyway, here we go. I approach this project with a common narrative in mind. I approach this project with a common narrative in mind, that the Western Empire fell due to pressure from the so-called barbarians and internal corruption. Things are a little bit more complicated than that. First of all, there was the issue of who was to actually be considered a Roman or a barbarian. The Emperor Caracalla had extended citizenship in 212 AD to all the inhabitants of the vast empire. So you didn't have to have been born in the city of Rome to be a Roman citizen. As time went by and more people entered the empire, it became quite difficult to distinguish. What's more, the city of Rome herself was not as big a deal as she had been in her past glory, with the capital being moved closer to the northern borders of the peninsula, to Milan in 286, then again in 402 the capital was moved to the much easier to defend Ravenna, surrounded by marshes as it was. To structure our story, we need to focus on three important events, represented by three names that I think we should remember because of their symbolic importance in the narrative and the practical effects they had on Italian history. What's more, these events would still resound in the living memory of the protagonists and the common people who would soon, for the sake of simplification and our story, stop being Romans and become Italians if you'll allow me the term, that would only really come of correct use almost 1,400 years later. The first of these three names is Alaric. Up until 408 AD, although there was a reigning emperor of the Western Empire in Ravenna, Honorius, true power lay in the hands of a half-Vandal, half-Roman general called Stilicho who had done a pretty good job of defending and running the empire. However, over time, relations between the general and the emperor had soured, undermined also by a man named Olympius. Stilicho was arrested and allowed himself to be executed rather than let his followers fight. An aspect of Stilicho's policy that had not pleased the emperor and the Italian aristocracy was his pro-barbarian stance, in particular his good relations with the Gothic king Alaric, whom he respected but had also fought against. When power fell into the hands of Olympius, 
the worst form of xenophobic, anti-barbarian sentiment was let loose, with dire consequences. Around 12,000 Goth soldiers had served in the Imperial Army, and their families had been settled in various areas as a way to make the soldiers loyal to the Empire. Olympias decided that their welcome had run out. He ordered that the wives and children of the soldiers should be killed. I really wonder how he felt that that was a good human resources management move. This genocide, which is the only real word you can use for it, had the immediate effect of the Roman army losing 12,000-odd soldiers who marched right up to King Alaric, who now, after the death of Stilicho, with whom he had had good relations, had a second pretext to invade Italy. And in 408, invade Italy he did. This time, after his first invasion earlier in the decade, when he was defeated by Stilicho, he didn't hang around in the north, but headed straight down to the symbolic heart of the empire, Rome herself. He laid siege to the city and made his demands, which the terrified Senate promptly met. He then made his way back up to Ravenna, laden with treasure, his army bloated not only by new soldiers, but also by the Gothic slaves that had simply walked away from their masters. He was here to extract more concessions from Honorius, in particular to secure a safe homeland for his people. Honorius refused, and so Alaric headed back down through the Apennines to Rome. The story gets a bit long and complicated here, including the fall of Olympius, the arrival of an eastern Roman army, another emperor being elected, and the involvement of northern Africa and a sneak attack on Alaric that was for him the last straw. He could no longer expect to negotiate with Honorius, which is what he wanted all the time and he could not show the Romans, nor his own Goths, that he had been bluffing the whole time. The important thing for us is that on August the 24th, 410, the Goths entered the city of Rome through the Salarian Gate, possibly through treachery, and sacked the city. Now, I've never been in a city that was being sacked, but I'm sure that it's never a pretty thing. However, Alaric was not set on the destruction of the city of Rome, nor the fall of the empire. He was also a Christian. Granted, he was an Arian Christian and not a Catholic, and we'll see that this issue will come up again later. But he was a Christian nonetheless. So he declared that anyone who sought sanctuary in a church and all the objects, furnishings, and riches in the churches were off-limits for the Goth soldiers. Anything or anyone caught outside the churches or in private homes was fair game. The sack lasted for three days, and when it was done, the Goths headed off for a little holiday down south, to present-day Calabria, which, along with Apulia, is to this day a great place for a seaside holiday. Alaric liked it so much that he thought it was a great place to keel over and die, so he keeled over and died. Some saw his death as a punishment for having violated the Eternal City. His burial is quite interesting. Fearing that his body would be desecrated if it were found, his Goths diverted the course of the Buzento River, buried him in the dry bed, and then diverted the stream back again. In the end, just to be sure, they also killed the captives who had done the work, 
so the location could never be revealed. So, Rome had been sacked. For the first time in 800 years, an enemy had entered the Eternal City, the city of Augustus Caesar, the capital of one of the largest empires that had existed in the Western world until then. The last time had been when Brennus and his Gauls had attacked the city in 390 BC. The ancient world was shocked. Augustine of Hippo tried to offer some consolation when he wrote, Roma non perrit si Romani non perreant, non enim delapidibus et lignus agitur. Roma qui est nisi Romani? Rome will not die if the Romans do not die. Indeed, it is not stone or wood. What is Rome if not the Romans? The second name in our list of significant events is Attila. From an Italian perspective, we are more interested in his actual descent into Italy. Indeed, the first time around, he had made his way through current-day Belgium and through France, but he had been defeated by an allied army of Romans and Visigoths, as well as other tribes. This time round, in 452, he went down galumping into Veneto, in the northeast of Italy, knowing that the Visigoths, who had helped the Romans defeat him, would be less likely to come to the aid of the empire if the Huns were not trampling through their territory. He was right. Anyway, the Huns flooded into the valleys of Veneto without meeting much resistance except for the city of Aquilea, which was completely destroyed for daring to resist. One rather important consequence of Attila's descent was something he did inadvertently. As he went along, devastating the cities and lands before him, the people fled. Many sought refuge among a series of islands off in the lagoon, off the coast of the Veneto region, where some forms of human settlement already existed. Some people would eventually return back to their lands, but many would stay in the lagoon, the numbers increasing over time. Their places of origin would give names to the various rioni, the quarters of a settlement that would become a city, a republic, an empire, a most serene republic called Venice. That was yet to come, for now there was Attila and his path of destruction. Vicenza, Verona, Brescia and Bergamo all fell. Then Milan, the ancient capital of the Roman Empire, also fell. With every city, every siege, more energy, more losses, more garrisons to leave behind, weighed down by more booty. To the Huns, from the vast empty steppes of Asia, the number of cities in the northern Italian peninsula must have seemed endless. Plus, the Roman general Aetius was running a hit-and-run guerrilla war in the swamps of the Po Valley that was a real drag on the Huns. Finally, Attila and his army arrived in Pavia, and that is where history moved into legend. Indeed, it is here that Attila was met by the Pope, Leo I. Now, in dealing with the history of Italy, we'll have a lot of time to talk about the papacy. So for the moment, we'll simply say that the role hadn't yet acquired the prestige it would acquire in centuries not long after the point we are at. 
At the beginning, the Pope, meaning simply Bishop of Rome, was one of the many leading bishops, but not the head of the organization. He was not even the highest political representative in Rome, being second fiddle to the city prefect. Leo was one of the popes who helped bring that prominence around. Anyway, he met Attila and somehow persuaded the Hun leader to abandon Italy and not march on Rome. No one really knows what was said, done or promised in the meeting, but apparently it was enough to convince Attila to back up and head off. That is the version that the papal spin doctors have consigned to history. Although Pope Leo himself, not being a boastful man and knowing his role had been marginal, never actually mentioned the meeting in his writings. Some historians assume that the feared scourge of God was already suffering from the serious nosebleeds that would eventually lead him to die of a hemorrhage, or that his superstition made him think about what had happened to Alaric. What's more, Eastern Roman Emperor Marcion had sent a relief army to the west, which had now arrived behind the Huns. Then there was one really big issue, and that is, the meeting didn't actually occur around Pavia, but Mantua, on the Mincio River, quite a lot further east, which meant that, rather than head for Rome, Attila was actually already heading home. In any case, it was a great PR moment for Pope Leo, who greatly increased his prestige and that of the papacy in general. He is one of the only two popes to bear the moniker the Great. Attila would die the next year, and his empire would crumble. The third and last name in our series is that of Odoasa. In the year 476, a young boy emperor, Romulus Augustus, called Augustulus with the diminutive meaning Little Augustus, sat on the western imperial throne of Ravenna. The capital of the empire, as we mentioned, had not been in Rome for quite a while. The true power behind the throne lay in the hands of his father, a general by the name of Orestes, who, after being named Magister Militum, basically head of the army by the previous emperor Julius Nepos, then proceeded to oust Nepos and replace him with his own son. Orestes proceeded to mess things up pretty quickly when a group of veteran Federati soldiers showed up on his doorstep asking for compensation and land for their service. The Federati were the non-Roman soldiers of Germanic origin who fought for the empire. In this case, principally Herali and Siri, the German tribe and not the iPhone AI. It's not that Orestes actually wanted to antagonize the soldiers, but it's likely that there was not a lot of cash going around. North Africa had been lost, as had Sicily and Provence, halting the flow of goods and taxes. However, the Federati were really actually asking for land, to be treated to the policy of hospitalitas, in which lands were assigned to veteran soldiers within the empire. This had never been done before inside the Italian peninsula, and if it were to be done, the lands would have to come from wealthy landowners who made up the political establishment and still had influence in the Roman Senate. They would not be happy if Orestes was giving their land away. 
In the face of his refusal, the Federati soldiers did what any bunch of disgruntled workers would do, and that is, elect a union rep. This was a man, a herald by the name of Odoasa. He accepted to help the soldiers as long as they accepted to grant him the title of Rex, which is not actually a hereditary king, but more of a tribal leader. Odoasa called Orestes up, well, he actually sent him a letter, and invited him to have a sit-down in Pavia. Orestes went along, hoping it wasn't a trap. It was a trap. Orestes and his men were attacked, but he managed to escape. Odoasa then caught up with him near the city of Piacenza. Piacenza is quite interesting because it is here that the Via Emilia ends. This was a road built by Roman consul Marcus Aemilius Lepidus between 189 and 187 BC or BCE and it stretches from Rimini on the Adriatic coast to Piacenza, cutting through the Emilia-Romagna region, one of the richest in the country today. Although Rimini these days is more known as a seaside destination, it also has some interesting archaeology, such as the Bridge of Tiberius, the Arch of Augustus, and it was home to the great Italian film director Federico Fellini. Anyway, Odoasa caught Orestes around Piacenza and battle ensued. Orestes lost and was executed. Odoasa then marched on Ravenna, found the Emperor Romulus Augustulus, and instead of having him executed, took pity on the boy and sent him off to a comfortable exile, perhaps tied to a comfy sofa. Just like that, without any big battles or epic event, the Western Roman Empire was over. Odoasa made it easy for later historians to mark this as a turning point. He didn't declare himself emperor or put a puppet on the throne, he simply collected up the imperial standards and insignia and sent them to Constantinople, as if to say, that's enough with all of this empire business. There is a lot of debate as to whether we can actually consider 476 the end of the Roman Empire. If you were to go around conducting a survey that year to those in the know, not the average Joe on the street or a farmer, but a senator, let's say, and you asked them if they believed the empire had fallen, they would probably have said, of course not. They've just changed yet another barbarian general as ruler of what was left of the western part of the empire. The emperor himself is still over there in New Rome, Constantinople, Emperor Zeno. Then, of course, there was the ousted Julius Nepos over on the other side of the Adriatic, who didn't die until 480. The stark distinction of 476 gained importance later when the Eastern Empire launched a military campaign to bring the Western part under its control and wished to mark a dividing point in what they considered legitimate government. The important thing now was that, for the moment, Odoasa had become the de facto ruler of Italy. Next time we'll stop stepping on the toes of better podcasters and get into the history of Italy proper and see how Odoasa got on. Until then, I hope you enjoyed our first episode or at least found it tolerable. Stay tuned after the credits and outro music for the sketch. If you would like to support the show, you can become a Patreon supporter by going to ahistoryofitaly.com, going to the support page and clicking through to Patreon. 
In this way, you can make a small monthly contribution to the show and get access to additional content. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can also look at timelines, videos, and go to our contact section where you can get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with questions, considerations, philosophical existential doubts that we won't be able to solve, but anyway, or just to say hello. Once again, thank you very much for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Who are you? Are you important? I only talk to important people. Oh, great Attila, it's me, the Pope Leo I. Why first? Is there a second? Uh, No, it's just a hunch. Oh, all right. What is a Pope, anyway? I am the Bishop of Rome. Ah, Rome, yes. I was just thinking of coming down and sacking it. Well, um, that's what I want to talk to you about. Yes? Would you mind not? Not what? Not sacking Rome. But I really want to, and it's not fair. I'll know it got to suck it. I think somebody's tired and grumpy. I'm not. You know, Rome is really, really far from here. How far? Oh, miles and miles of dusty roads, swamps, mosquitoes. I hate mosquitoes. Yes, yes. Plus, the Roman citizens can be really mean. They might make fun of you. You don't need to go galumping down there. But galumping is kind of my thing. Well, we'll give you a lot of cash. I've got a lot of cash. We'll really like you and be best friends forever. Do I get a friendship bracelet? Of course. Now who's my good little scourge of God? (laughs) I am. That's a good little hun. We'll even send you a nice letter... On your birthday. And Christmas. Of course, Christmas. And we'll send you an egg for Easter. An egg? Why? I I don't know. It just uh, seemed like a good idea. It may catch on someday, say around the 13th century maybe. Um, So what do you say? Well. Go on, please. Well. Pretty please with the crushed bones of your enemy on top. All right then. There's a good lad. Bye-bye now. I'm so awesome.